Uh, I'm delighted to, to welcome Martin Chasnover from, who's a, a neighbour, he's just over in the nice new interest building that we're all envious of in the, in the uh, NCG National Centre for Geocomputation and we've been really remiss at talking to those guys, seems the more I talk to them the more I find we have in common um, around you know, uh, working with data and uh, so, so I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing what, what Martin's going to tell us a bit more about what they're up to, so Martin, thank you very much. And, and Thank you very much, Doug. Well, uh, just to thank Doug for the opportunity of, uh, um, of the, the first time in seven and a half years that I've worked at the university for um, being able to um, have the privilege of, uh, of talking to you this afternoon. Uh, perhaps I might start with an advert. Uh, there's another seminar at uh, four o'clock given by Professor Hanorn Samet of the Department of Computer Science at the University of Maryland uh, in the uh, NCG uh, seminar room and uh, Alexei, who's sitting just in the back row there, will have more details for people who like to go to that seminar. So Hanon now owes me a pint of beer. Okay, um, Doug asked me if I'd give a chat about uh, geographically weighted uh, regression um, to you, and it's uh, something that's a topic that's been associated with my name and, and others for quite some period of time. Um, just in case any of you might be under, labouring under the misapprehension that you're talking to a trained statistician or a mathematician, I actually trained as a town and country planner at the University of Newcastle many, many years ago. Um, and uh, in 1980, after I graduated, I discovered geography. And uh, I think things probably went downhill from then on. Uh, I did the usual thing of uh, uh, many years as a research associate in a group called the Centre for Urban and Regional Development Studies at Newcastle. So, you know, I'm a social scientist. So, um, um, and in 1980, 1991, I uh, became a lecturer and I taught unwilling geography st students uh, introductory statistics and geographic information systems for the next uh, 13 years before coming here in September 2004 and discovering that uh, um, actually Maynooth's climate was not too dissimilar from Newcastle's climate. Anyway, enough of the background. Um, I thought what I'd do is just talk a little bit um, about the background, so where we came from in terms of geographically weighted regression, a little bit about spatial data and the way that I as a geographer think about spatial data, quite a bit about geographically weighted regression and how it all goes together, and then some of the more recent work that uh, we've been doing. Uh, there are dozens of slides, but I'll go through them quite quickly. Now, some of you might like uh, walking in the countryside, and those of you who have had the misfortune to visit the west coast of Britain uh, will be probably aware that it rains a little bit more there than on the east coast. And it's been known for quite a long period of time uh, in terms of rainfall that uh, um, rainfall tends to increase uh, with, with elevation, so you get wetter at the top of mountains than at the bottom. And nearly a, a century ago, the splendidly named Morton de Carl Salter um, had a look at some of the variations in rainfall, uh, and in particular the relationship between rainfall and height around Britain. And without going as far as regression, he drew some, some, uh, some plots of the relationships and came to the general conclusion that it was impossible to come up with a general formula for the relationship between rainfall and elevation. And he said at the end of his, uh, his paper, this makes it necessary to study every record in the light of the configuration of the surrounding uh, country, which was uh, really quite an interesting thing to say for uh, 1921. Well, of course, 
Geographers being a bit slow on the uptake took the best part of uh, um, 80 years to, uh, to, to, to come up with uh, a, a, another view of that. And Chris Brunsden, who's one of the co-developers of uh, GWR with me, and Stuart Fotheringham, uh, re-examined the relationship uh, using data from rain gauges uh, averaged over a 30-year uh, period, 10,000 rain gauges uh, all over the, um, the, the location of Britain as well as the, um, the average annual rainfall as the height of each rain gauge. So it's relatively easy to stick these into uh, whatever your favorite statistical program is and, um, uh, and do a plot and produce some sort of model which purports to um, um, uh, give some uh, um, ability to predict the rainfall uh, knowing where the elevation is. The problem is that the level of, of accountability for the, uh, this variable by the variation in the model is, is, is rather low. 70% of the variation in the rainfall is not accounted for by uh, elevation on its own. So there's, there's obviously one or two things missing from the model. And if you start to decouple um, the relationship um, and look um, at, uh, say, the west coast of Britain, so the Cornwall and Wales, uh, Cumbria and the west coast of Scotland there, uh, you'll see that the points which are highlighted uh, tend to be down in, um, in, in the centre part down here. Whereas on the east coast of Britain, so down from the east coast of Scotland all the way down to East Anglia and Kent, the relationship between rainfall and height appears to be uh, a little bit more uh, gentle. So clearly there are, uh, there, there are several processes going on here in terms of that relationship between rainfall and height and there's something that we haven't got here in the, in the model and um, there's, there's obviously a geographical relationship. So how might one, one, one do that? So the single model is not able to deal with the, um, uh, the, 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 the relationship here and what's more it's unlikely to satisfy many of the assumptions that we should uh, take note of in fitting ordinary least squares for models. So the residuals from the model are unlikely, since they obviously will show some spatial pattern if we only fit one model, they'll be positive towards the, uh, the west and north, negative towards the east. So all those desirable things for regression models of independence, normality and, and homoscedacity uh, just go out of the window with this particular one. So it's the wrong sort of model to fit for this uh, data. Um, so we refer to this uh, process as, as heterogeneity. Spatial data, for those of you who've played with the stuff, can be awkward. The, the relationship between rainfall and elevation is clearly not constant across the study area. It's not homogeneous, it's heterogeneous. And uh, other data exhibit spatial heterogeneity. And I've done some modelling, for example, of, uh, of house prices. And the relationship between um, the, uh, the, the price of a residential property and the characteristics of the property, its size, the number of bedrooms, whether it's got central heating or not, do vary uh, quite markedly from, uh, from place to place. Now, how, do, how have geographers, and I'm speaking as a geographer, and so this is sort of you know, one discipline talking to another, how have geographers tried to deal with in the past? Because um, uh, meteorology is an important part of the, the grand uh, uh, discipline of geography. Well, one way we could say we could add a dummy variable, so we could code north as west and, and one as east, and perhaps create an interaction term uh, to obtain separate relationships for the east and west of the country. It's quite clear where uh, east and the east and west coast are. So uh, Swansea in South Wales um, is uh, probably uh, um, uh, satisfies most people's definition of west. 
and Canterbury over on the other side of England near France, well that probably satisfies most definitions of East, but what about Coventry? Well, I mean, most people are probably hard-pressed to put Coventry on a map. It's somewhere in the middle. Uh, it is west of London, but it's, it's not really west of the country. It, it's difficult to decide whether one could uh, deal with Coventry or Leicester. I mean, the same question occurs with, um, you know, Dublin and Galway. You know, is, is Athlone or Mullingar, is that east or west? It's a similar sort of question. So uh, an approach such as that isn't particularly satisfactory. There's another problem. We've got... 10,000 rain gauges here and um, one thing we could do is we could say we could calculate separate relationships for every county or every um, Nuts 3 region for those of you who are familiar with the um, uh, European Community Statistical Regions or police force areas or electoral divisions or 3,000 divisions of, uh, um, 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 that's why I'm talking about Britain, um, or um, uh, any other sort of um, administrative unit but the problem is that climate is not really bothered whether it's in one administrative unit or another so again that wouldn't be a terribly sensible way of doing something and then there's another problem with imposing arbitrary underlying spatial units on data um, which it actually took a bunch of sociologists to discover um, Charles Gelko was professor of, uh, actually a political scientist at uh, Northwest University. Catherine Beale published one paper only in her lifetime with Charles Gelko, and this is it. And one thing they observed is that um, in looking at some data um, uh, for uh, United States counties and computing correlation coefficients is that not only was the correlation coefficient uh, conditioned on the size of the aerial units used, and they did some simulation experiments to look at correlations based on large aerial units and small aerial units from the same basic data, uh, so that the smaller units tend to um, uh, produce smaller values of the correlation, but also the way that you, you grouped smaller units together to get larger units um, had considerable influence on the correlation of coefficient, uh, correlation coefficients. And there's a, a famous paper in geography um, called A Million or So Correlation Coefficients, where using data for voting in the counties of Iowa and aggregating those to arbitrary numbers of, of larger regions, um, uh, the um, geographers Stan Openshaw and Peter Taylor obtained correlation coefficients which ran from minus one to plus one. So the same underlying data gives very different, uh, uh, very different answers. And if we think in Ireland, if you think of the 3,300 electoral divisions which the Census Office used for um, uh, creating, uh, for reporting the census data and the you know, 27, 33 counties, whatever you are, there are lots of different ways of aggregating 3,300 areas into 30 larger ones, and you could repeat the, pro uh, the, the, the problem yourself. There's another uh, issue, which is that of, uh, uh, which has been called spatial dependence, and that's that observations with similar values tend to, uh, tend to cluster in space. So Noel Cressy has commented that dependence is present in all directions, and becomes weaker as data locations become more and more dispersed. And uh, Varga has uh, commented that clustering tends to result from spatial dependence. Similar values concentrate uh, spatially. We're, we'll return to that uh, particular property uh, shortly. Now, um, in the way that 
nobody likes to use other people's uh, tools. Geographers tried to come to um, um, uh, up with some alternative ways of, uh, uh, of doing this. Uh, the American geographer Luke Anselin uh, proposed a couple of models, one called a spatial lag model, so taking into account the heterogeneity and, and dependence. So the predictions are based on values of not only one uh, set of independent variables, but weighted values of the neighbouring, uh, of the Y variable in neighbouring areas. And a spatial error model in which the terms in the, in, in the neighbouring spatial units are correlated and they're built into uh, the models. What Anselin's models do is require you to produce a, a spatial weight matrix uh, and again, for geographers, uh, typical um, 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 for aerial data, typical forms of the spatial data matrix might be uh, adjacency. So uh, one aerial unit is uh, next to it than another one, so that counts an adjacency. If it's not, it's, 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 it's not. So it's a, a binary, so we have one naught. Uh, you could um, finesse it by weighting the length of the common boundary, or another one is to provide some sort of measure of the distance between the centroids of the spatial units, uh, typically a Euclidean distance, uh, but squared Euclidean distances uh, have been used. And with aerial units, the first two uh, tend to be uh, common. And of course, I was reminded by my colleague uh, Paul Harris, uh, as a geostatistician, uh, who did his statistics training in the mining industry. There's a rich corpus of predictive models which come under the heading of, of, of geostatistics, uh, most of those associated with the term Krieging, and there's, the, there's any number of books uh, on Krieging. And the weights in this case are then given by the, uh, the Krieging variogram. Um, I'll, bring, I'll come back to this a little bit later. Now, Amongst the, and I'm in the background to GWR, um, I'm actually coming up to talking about it in a moment, um, geographers started investigating models um, where the assumption that the relationship between the Y and the bunch of X variables uh, was not constant. And one of the things that they noticed is when you were fitting regression models to spatial data, if you plotted the residuals from those, you tended to get spatial patterns in them. So you've got data which is not heteristic, may not be normal, may not have those desirable properties. Um, the American geographer Emilio Cassetti is um, um, accredited with inventing what he called the spatial expansion method. And, uh, the amazingly named Wilpen Gore and, and uh, Foster invented a technique called spatial adaptive filtering. Uh, the expansion method has turned up and um, since this is being recorded, um, Emilio Cassetti's uh, well, his, uh, um, uh, student John Paul Jones is rumoured to hate us because he reckons in GWR we just copied the expansion method, so I'll have to talk a little bit about it. Um, with the expansion method, supposing you've got a Y variable and a single predictor uh, measured at a set of locations, and you know the coordinates of those locations, so if you fit a very simple model where Y is alpha plus beta x, so beta is the, the, the gradient parameter and uh, alpha is the y-axis intercept, you can make those particular um, uh, coefficients functions themselves of location. So, uh, the alpha term can be expanded to include terms which are dependent on the coordinates uh, u and v, and the beta can be expanded to include um, uh, terms which are dependent on the coordinates u and v. So you can take a spatial trend, in that case uh, a linear trend. I've seen models which are quadratic. Um, if you include higher order terms, you either run out of data or your models become incredibly collinear. Um, and once you put the expansion terms in, then the models tend to take on a rather complex form, uh, such as the one down below. And more importantly, they're 
quite difficult to, um, uh, to in uh, interpret. So just as an example here, um, um, I wrote a little R function to do this. Um, it's a model which predicts, and I'll return to it, um, uh, educational attainment as a function of some of the socioeconomic characteristics of the counties in Georgia. And I fitted just a very simple model where I looked at the proportion of foreign-born as a potential predictor of uh, the proportion of the population educated to bachelor's level or higher. Um, and what you discover is that um, there's no east-west pattern, but there is something suggestive of uh, a north-south pattern, although it becomes a little bit difficult to interpret why that might be. We'll come back to uh, things in, uh, in a moment. The problem with the expansion method is that you need to specify in advance the functional form between the parameters and the spatial coordinates. Um, so you're making some assumptions there about the constancy across space. The relationship may not necessarily be, uh, be, be linear. And um, one of the problems of, of this particular model, since you've got the, um, the coordinates appearing several times on the right-hand side, uh, you, tend to get, um, you tend to get collinearity issues with the model. Um, and if you've got a more complex quadratic or cubic relationship, this, this is magnified. Okay, so now back to geographically weighted regression. Um, there's an American geographer called uh, Waldo Tobler who, who comes into this. Um, and he used a particular assumption to uh, aid the fitting of, um, of, a, of a model. Um, and geographers refer to this thing as Tobler's first law, though um, it, 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 it's, uh, it's more Tobler's assertion. But basically it, it says everything is related to everything else, but near things are more related than distant things. So the notion of spatial dependence is, is built into there. And Chris Brunsden and I and Stuart Fotheringham sat down in this pub in county in the town of Durham, uh, and uh, Chris sketched out the initial parts of GWR on the back of a beer mat. So let's talk. Let's take some um, uh, some um, definitions here. I'll call a model in like a standard ordinary least squares model or a Poisson model um, in which the parameter estimates for every observation in the sample are identical. I'll call that a global model. So it's the sort of one that if you use the LM function in, in, in R, for example, um, you, get a, 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 you, you put some Y and X variables in and you get some coefficients out. Now, if we let the parameter estimates vary across the study area, so every area has its own set of parameter estimates, um, so if we've got uh, n areas, there'll be n sets of parameter estimates and diagnostics. We'll call that uh, a local model. And the question comes in, well, how do we actually estimate that? So, uh, as I said, I'm, you know, I'm no statistician here, but um, I think I understand where we came from here. And it did, I did actually, I'll have a confession to make, I didn't actually understand a great deal about GWR until I sat down and wrote some programs for it, and then it dawned on me what it was actually doing. So the least squares estimator for the relationship between the uh, design matrix X, the, um, the, the, the observed uh, the dependent variable Y, and the coefficient uh, takes that form. So we um, calculate the cross products, invert it, multiply it by this, so we get some estimates for the parameters. Now, one of the things we can do, um, which is done a lot in the social sciences, weighting those observations uh, with a diagonal weight, weight matrix. So the weights go down the leading diagonal of the, uh, of the weight matrix, um, and there can be all sorts of weights go in there. Well, the geographical weighting um, 
comes out of the um, uh, from the, 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 the kernel regression literature, and that's kernel regression in the hasty and Tipsharani sense rather than the uh, the machine learning sense. Um, one of the things that uh, we, it struck us, it's if we make the weighting um, relative to the position of some location where we want some uh, parameter estimates, then we can, um, we can build that geographical weighting into the model. So the weights here, I've got them indexed by U, and U is some location inside our study area. Um, the U's are usually the locations at which the data are collected, which makes this thing uh, quite easy to, uh, to estimate. So they just go down the um, leading diagonal of the matrix. And that gives us, um, if we know the distances between the location U and every other data point, we can create some um, um, parameter estimates at the location U by plugging them into the ordinary least squares formula. So supposing we've got 100 spatial units in our, spa in our, in our study area, then we, run, we, we calculate 100 sets of weights and um, we do 100 sets of uh, uh, separate estimations. I mean, they're not actually separate because each is dependent on the other. The data is used and reused. And in terms then of the weighting schemes, um, it's not so much the weighting scheme as there's, there's several which have been proposed. We've, we've got a, 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 a sort of Gaussian one up here where the uh, D is the distance between the location U and any particular uh, observation. And um, the amount of smoothing is, 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 um, is, a, is controlled by the parameter H, which we call the bandwidth. Um, and um, so the larger H becomes the larger the bandwidth, uh, the more each individual weight uh, uh, becomes close to, uh, to unity. And the smaller the bandwidth, then, then the larger the, 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 uh, the, the, the weighting from the diversions from the, uh, the global case. So we've experimented with a Gaussian one and a bi-square one. So the bi-square, the result is there. Uh, when the distance is uh, greater, when the distances between you and the objects are greater than the bandwidth, we set the weights to zero. Um, and you can use that in quite a neat way in, in GWR. So the bandwidth then in these, in these cases, we refer to these weighting schemes as uh, kernels. And the question is, well, where do we get the bandwidth from? And the thing is, they can either be supplied, you might have some good reasons for wanting to supply a bandwidth out exogenously. You might have carried out some experiments and you, you think, okay, I, my bandwidth is such and such. Or you can estimate it from the data. As I've already said, the, the more the bandwidth is, then the more the model parameters will approach their global values. And if you put in a very, very large bandwidth, uh, you know, perhaps thousands or million times um, of the, uh, the, the, the extent of the study area, then the parameters do um, uh, settle down on their global values. To estimate the bandwidth, um, one of the things that we've, uh, we've noted in, 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 in looking at this is the, the weighting is more sensitive to the variation in bandwidth than the, the choice of kernel function. And, and people have used GWR have come up with a, a range of uh, kernel functions. So the bi-square and, and the Gaussian one are the uh, most common. So what's an appropriate choice for the bandwidth? Uh, I've already said it acts like a smoothing parameter. Um, uh, large and um, every weight uh, settles down as one, so it looks like a global model. Uh, if the value's too small, the model wraps itself uh, around the data. Um, or you end up with, uh, if, the, if the bandwidth is very, very small, you actually haven't got um, enough data in the neighborhood of your location uh, to provide uh, a reliable estimate of the parameters or um, the cross-products matrix blows up when you're trying to inver invert it. 
Um, so there are a couple of, couple of ways that we are, we, we've used. Um, in general, we're trying to optimize here for, for um, getting models which fit the observed wire data and anything else on top of that is, is, is a bonus. So if we've set up a criterion that we find the bandwidth so uh, it gives us the best predictions of the Y variable, then we can use a, a couple of criteria. And in the software that I've written and other people's software, uh, two approaches are commonly used. One's to use leave one out cross-validation, um, and uh, that, that's calculated for every estimate, and uh, a single score uh, can be plotted against the... Um, uh, the variation in the bandwidth, or you can put it into some sort of optimization routine, um, you know, typically a, a golden section or a binary search. Or a second approach is to use the, the Akiki information criterion or a variant thereof. Now, one of the things about uh, GWR is if, if you take an ordinary least squares model and you, uh, you estimate the hat matrix, then the trace of the leading diagonal of the hat matrix gives you the number of parameters that you've estimated in the model. So um, uh, if you've got five parameters in the model and you'll find that the sum of the, the, the trace of that hat matrix is five. Uh, there is a hat matrix for GWR, I'll say it's in our book and it's in our papers, um, that actually has the form of the, the uh, um, calculation and you've got to calculate the hat matrix uh, row by row. Um, and the hat matrix, just to remind ourselves, is that matrix which converts the observed Ys into the fitted Ys, and we can derive a hat matrix uh, for GWR, and it's quite easily uh, calculated. Now, with GWR, what we discovered uh, earlier on is that uh, as the bandwidth um, changes, then the number of parameters changes. The smaller the bandwidth gets, uh, the, the larger the number of um, parameters um, uh, 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 that appear. We refer to it as the effective number of parameters, um, which results from summing the, 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 um, the values in the leading diagonal of the hat matrix. So this means that in terms of, say, using a goodness of fit measure like the R squared, um, the, the, the models actually have a, different, a, a slightly different form, so we can't compare one model with another. We're not comparing like with like. Um, so um, we need some other way of doing that. Um, and um, the Akiki information criterion allows us to include not just a, a measure of uh, the, 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 the goodness of fit, the divergence between the observed and the expected Ys uh, in terms of the likelihood part, but there's also a penalty for the, comple the, the complexity of the model. So when we calculate an AIC for a particular model for the same Ys, we're always um, comparing uh, like with like which means it's then quite uh, useful in terms of finding a model that produces the best fits to the observed data. We've always got the same whys uh, for, our, um, for our estimations. So what then do we get out from, uh, from, from GWR? Well, we get estimates of the parameters at each location in the study area. So supposing the study areas have been counties of Ireland, um, there are 33, depending on which definition you use. So there would be 33 sets of uh, uh, parameter estimates in, in, in a model. Um, though we've, we can calculate the, 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 the locally weighted standard errors. Um, obviously, if we've, got, uh, we've, we've got the data there, so we can uh, compute the fitted values and the residuals and standardized residuals. And um, the 
inferential framework for um, um, GWR is, is, is one of those that's, uh, uh, we might say, under development. We can estimate a pseudo-T, that's just the relationship between the, uh, the ratio between the parameter and its standard error to test whether or not a parameter estimate is equal to zero. And two questions arise from the sets of estimates. We've got a set of estimates, and we'll look at a few, an example in a moment, but going back to that map of the, 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 the expansion method where the parameters vary, one of the questions that arises, well, is there sufficient evidence to say that that parameter estimation is real, or is it just, has it just arisen as a result of, of chance variation around the study area? Uh, we developed a Monte Carlo significance test for that. And the other one, uh, which I've already alluded to, are the values of the individual parameter estimates, in fact, zero, or so close to zero that we can regard them as zero. So any of the local variation in a particular variable doesn't affect the variation in, in the Y variable. Um, and the way we've done that is to treat them as, as, as locally weighted T values. The main problem in doing that is that um, if you've got, a, say, five variables in your model, and you've got um, 100 study errors, then you're doing 500 significance tests, and uh, you need to take into account uh, uh, the, the multiple testing that you're doing. Um, 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 so there are various adjustments which are, which are possible. Now, is there a literature on GWR? Um, well, Chris and Stuart and I wrote our first paper on GWR where we actually used the term geographically weighted regression and had it published in a, a, a journal called Geographical Analysis in 1996. Um, and it was six years before we got our act together and produced a book about the subject and uh, made some software available for um, users to run uh, geographically weighted regression models. So, although we've been banging on about them, um, people do like to have some software to, uh, to, to, to play with. And one of the things which has characterised research in geography is that you get groups of people who um, you know, are able to use something like R, able to programme their own stuff in C, and they're a very small corpus of people. And there's other people who'd like to be able to use a particular method uh, but don't have the, the, the capability of um, being able to sort of program it for themselves or to derive it for themselves uh, or, or have some friend who'll do the stuff for them. Um, so what tends to happen, certainly in the geographical field, is that people wait for some software to become available. And over the years, there are, uh, there are now several sort of versions of it uh, those of you who use the R package, um, Roger Bivens and Dan Lin Yu created a package which is related to all the SP packages in R called SPGWR. Um, David Wheeler, who's been one of the people who's looked at some of the criticisms in GWR, uh, created his own package called GWRR. Um, the guys at Biomedware in Ann Arbor have got a package called SpaceStat. Um, geographers have their own software called Geographic Information Systems, and the most popular one in the world is ArcGIS. Uh, we collaborated with, um, with uh, the Environmental Systems Research Institute in their ArcGIS tool, and various people have produced their own stuff, including us. Now, that's not a, an advert uh, by any um, um, a, a, a stretch of the imagination, uh, but merely an indication of how things tend to happen in geography. I mean, I'm sitting in a room full of people who would have no difficulty sitting down at MATLAB or R and banging it all out in about five minutes, but for uh, other corpuses of people around the world, it's a little bit more complex. 
And then one of the other things that we've done over the years, and, uh, and it's the gang of three, me, Chris and, um, and, and Stuart, is we've run a whole series of workshops about geographically weighted regression um, uh, really all over the world um, um, over the, uh, the, the, certainly the last decade. Now, what's the, I think one of the things which is uh, perhaps important to look is, well, you know, one of the things is why are we doing it, but then sort of how do we actually, uh, how do we actually do it? What's the relationship between uh, geographically weighted regression and geographic information systems, and only thought about this slide um, this morning, and then realised that potentially I uh, might be in a group of people for whom uh, GIS was 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 less familiar. So um, uh, the, the, there are some um, uh, there are some examples in here. GIS software and GWR, the, the relationship is really before you start modelling. So GW, GIS is used in the data integration process. So. We're creating aggregations of um, collections of data for sets of spatial units, and GIS software enables us to do that very, very easily. And the outputs from GWR, are, um, uh, they have been described as uh, mappable. We can map the parameter estimates, the standard errors, the t-values, the residuals, standard residuals, and so on. Um, so GIS tends to get used as a diagnostic tool. So um, you've have a GIS software, you've got to get the data out into some GWR software and then put the results back into GIS in order to be able to, to look at what, uh, to what happens. So let me just give you a, a brief example. The screenshots come from um, ArcGIS. It's just one of the uh, uh, ones that I happen to use and the example is, is related back to the, um, the example from the expansion method I gave earlier. So... Um, one of the data sets which we make available just as a standard one uh, is for every county in Georgia in the United States. So from the, I think it was the 1990 US Census, uh, we've got a measure of educational attainment. As I said, it's the proportion of people with bachelor's uh, education or higher. And then a proportion of socioeconomic variables, which some of the literature on educational attainment suggested might be uh, influential in, um, in determining the variation of that uh, beyond the, the, the counties. So if I put those into a standard ordinary least squares model and I, um, I, you know, I press the button and attempt to do the, the prediction, um, then ArcGIS uh, gives me a set of parameter estimates and standard errors and all the other wonderful things that you get out of there and um, answered a question which comes up to anybody who's actually trying to write a particular tool in that the output from uh, GIS tools is generally visual so what's the very very first map that one ought to see um, in terms of uh, the output from the tool what, 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 should the, uh, what decision do you make um, and very early on we suggested, well, actually looking at the lack of fit between the predictions from the model and the observed data um, and then um, uh, making some suggestions as to whether any spatial patterns in the residuals was probably an, interest, uh, an important one. So these are the residuals from the model, the differences between the predictions from the model and the, uh, the observed Y values. And you notice there's some uh, very large positive residuals here 
and it comes as no surprise to learn that there are significant educational institutions as the University of Georgia here, the State University, uh, and so on. So the, the, the large positive residuals of where we've had the under-prediction from the model uh, in terms of educational attainment. So there are many more people uh, with bachelor's degrees or higher around the university areas. Um, down here in the southern, the swampy parts of Georgia, uh, well, the residuals are, are the other way. The model has actually, um, well, down here, the model's um, where the blue areas are. The model has over-predicted, um, uh, over and um, the, the, the prediction is that the levels of educational attainment are much higher than they, than they actually are. And uh, if you calculate an, an autocorrelation coefficient, uh, you discover that the, um, the, the residuals, in fact, exhibit some uh, spatial autocorrelation. So the residuals from that model are not independent. They're dependent of one another. There is spatial structure in the residuals. That tells us that we've left something out of the model. So part of that could be um, in terms of controlling for that by the, the geographical weighting. So just fitting the, the same model but using the, uh, the GWR tool... Um, what is interesting is the GWR tool also fails to, uh, to pick up the, um, uh, the, the, the location of the universities. There are under-predictions there. They're not quite as high as the, um, as the, the ordinary least squares model. Um, the pattern does look, um, um, there does look to be some spatial pattern in there. The autocorrelation statistics suggest that uh, the evidence is less strong. And the fit of the model, so it, we've got better predictions of the, of the educational attainment than this from the standard level uh, model. Now, I've already hinted that um, for every area, you get a separate set of uh, parameter estimates. So uh, there's 170-odd counties in, in Georgia. I have four variables in the model. It has a, uh, there's an intercept term as well. So we've got um, five times 179 uh, separate parameter estimates. Then we've got a separate prediction for each area, a residual, and so on. So it's not convenient to print out the, um, all of the results. And if you had, uh, say, um, um, you know, data for the 3,000 counties in Ireland and a similar sort of model, you'd be deluged in, uh, in output. The results do actually appear. They're, they're automatically stored in the, uh, in the software by the software tool. In our particular tool, um, they're, they're written into a CSV file so they can pull into, uh, into something else for, for analysis. One of the things that we do tend to do, though, is, is, is to use these um, as what we might call mappable parameters. So um, uh, this is the parameter estimate for the, uh, the, 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 the foreign-born, the proportion of people born outside the United States. And um, I should have actually produced a, a rather nicer map since I do claim to be a geographer, but this is a quick, cheap and dirty one here. There is the, 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 the relationship is, is, as you'd expect, it is positive, so, um, uh, and that's um, um, uh, in line with the output from the global model. Um, but there's a north-south relationship here, so that in the south, variation in the, uh, the local variation in the proportion of people who are born outside the UK is much less influential on the... Um, um, on the variation in uh, educational attainment than it is in the northern part of the county. And uh, one can do that for the other parameter estimates and uh, a bunch of diagnostic statistics as, uh, as well. Um, now, 
I'll move on to um, just a sort of set of uh, the uh, developments and extensions where we've taken the principle. And one of the things that uh, uh, has also uh, happened is um, uh, we have managed to make, uh, th th there are some quite uh, um, uh, significant criticisms of GWR as a methodology uh, which have been published in the literature. And um, um, uh, we have been accused in the past of merely just sitting here um, um, uh, and indulging in boosterism. So it's, uh, it's, it's right that I should uh, uh, rehearse some of those. First of all, um, um, and this is not a criticism, this is just a, um, um, a characteristic of the model, it is possible to estimate um, data, uh, to estimate parameters at locations where we haven't collected data. Uh, the, 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 the locations indexed by you in the, um, um, in the estimator uh, can be anywhere in the study area. So, for example, it could be at the mesh points of uh, a regular grid. And I have used that to produce... Um, uh, uh, apparent surfaces of uh, GWR um, um, parameter estimates when we publish them in, uh, in, in books uh, in, or in papers. Um, they could be, um, uh, we've done this with housing data, I have a large corpus of housing data for the UK where I've got as the, as the, as the Y variable, the thing that we're interested in, the selling price of the house. Uh, there's almost a similar data set available in Ireland, but it has the asking price on the selling price. But this is the selling price. And then for every house in the, in the, in the house sale, um, uh, a measure of the floor area, the number of bedrooms, the type of central heating, what sort of garage it's got. And there's a rich literature on what real estate modelers call hedonic modeling, which uh, looks at the relationship between the characteristics of, of properties and the, the selling price. And there are spatial variations in those relationships. And uh, people often talk about, um, you know, oh, well, housing in such and such a town, you know, in this part it's, it's, it's very expensive compared with, with other parts. We've observed things that the, the relationship, I mean, for example, between the house price and floor area does show quite significant variations around, the, uh, 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 around London, for example. But we, we, uh, the same thing would be true of, uh, of, of Dublin. One of the things that you can do uh, here is actually split your data set in two. Um, you can calculate the parameter estimates at the locations of other houses, um, not the ones that you've collected data for, and then use the characteristics of those other houses to provide yourself with some predictions and, and measures of the goodness of fit. So you've got a training set and a validation set uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of the data. Um, there are other ways of doing prediction at non-data um, points, and my colleague uh, Paul Harris has developed, um, as a result of his uh, PhD, um, some geostatistical GWR hybrids, uh, and there's a bunch of papers that, uh, that relate to those for um, those of you who want to, uh, uh, to look at that in a bit more detail. Another question arises in terms of uh, model building, and one of the things that uh, we have in the book is we propose um, what we describe as semi-parametric models. So models in which some of the variables would have global parameter values, so we'd actually a priori specify those as saying that there's no spatial variation in the parameters, others where we allow the, the parameters to vary spatially. So some of the variables are global, others are, are local in, in our definition. And the question is, how can we help the users decide what is the appropriate uh, uh, set of variables to be treated as local or global? And you might have no uh, initial views as to which one is, is which. 
We experimented with a pseudo stepwise method in which we put variables in the model and take them out and look at the change in the Akiiki information criterion. Um, but it, never, it was never particularly satisfactory in, uh, in doing so. I'll come back to that one. There's another underlying issue that um, uh, all the way through I've, I've mentioned that uh, the estimator relies on some, um, um, some um, calculations of the distances between those areas where we'd like to, um, those locations where we'd like to estimate parameter estimates and the locations where we collect data. Um, and geographers tend to do either two things. One's to calculate a Euclidean distance, so a straight line distance between um, the, the focus points, the data points, and the regression points, the uh, points where we want to study the, um, uh, where we want to estimate the parameter estimates. There's also, in the United States, people tend up, turn up with data which is indexed by spherical coordinates, so measures of latitude and longitude, so not using a projected coordinate system like, uh, say, Irish Transverse Mercator, the Irish National Grid, or Universal Transverse Mercator, um, such as we have in, um, in this country. Um, because of the size of the United States, they often use lat and long. So um, using great circle distances is, is, is one alternative there in case of uh, latitude and longitude. Um, I have seen people experiment with latitude and longitude. Um, the, 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 um, the, the, the distances are not too distorted if you're near the equator, but if you're in high latitude, then um, the, the distances do tend to become uh, distorted. Uh, there are alternatives to those two. Um, the Japanese geographer Atsuyuki Okabe suggested um, using, um, and if one's modelling social data for example, using distances um, which are um, uh, perhaps more appropriate in terms of thinking about the way that people move around from location to location for using distances along uh, road networks. Uh, they're not difficult to calculate, it just, um, uh, it just takes a little bit longer to fit the, uh, the, fit the models. And it may be appropriate when, when, when modelling social processes to consider um, uh, those. They allow you to do things like um, take into account, um, uh, say, rivers and, and railways and things as, as barriers, to, uh, barriers to movement. One thing they do require is a reliable representation of the road network, which in some areas is less easy to get hold of uh, than in, in others. Um, I've got a PhD student who's been looking at that. Uh, there are other distance metrics, the Minkowski metrics, for example, are ones which Bin Bin's been looking at. So uh, geographers have appropriated the term uh, um, taxicab distances or city block distances or Manhattan distances for um, ones in which the distance exponent is one, the Euclidean distance for um, the distance exponent are two. Uh, we've looked at ones where we've got a non-integer distance exponent and compared those with, uh, with road distances. And you can do all sorts of other interesting things like rotate the, uh, the coordinate system as well. Um, so the, the dimension of the underlying distance metric then becomes something which is estimated uh, along with the, uh, the bandwidth when one's fitting the, uh, one's fitting the data. I mentioned uh, earlier on a, 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 a little bit about uh, the problem of uh, collinearity. Um, David Wheeler and Michael Tiefelsdorf um, uh, raised at a conference that I was sitting at uh, in the audience and was then discussing for the same paper um, on what they saw as a significant problem for GWR 
um, and that is the influence of, of collinearity. Uh, one of the problems of the, of the geographical weighting scheme is that uh, data does tend to become, the, the cross products matrix does tend to become uh, more collinear um, than um, uh, when one's just fitting um, a model with um, uh, global weights. And um, one of the problems is that if there's a wonderful book by uh, Belzey and colleagues um, in which they calculate uh, condition numbers for uh, the cross product matrices and where the, the condition number is greater than 30, this is held to indicate potential collinearity problems. And uh, uh, various of the, um, um, uh, the, 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 the US guys have, have produced simulated data with all sorts of uh, levels of collinearity and shown how that's affected uh, linkages between the, uh, the GWR uh, coefficients. That's something that we're looking at uh, in the moment, at the moment. Um, uh, David Wheeler's been very constructive about it and he suggested alternative ways of dealing with it and uh, certainly in the, um, in the face of collinearity, uh, ridge regression the, and the lasso uh, are being appropriated um, and um, uh, we've de he's developed uh, geographically weighted versions of, of ridge and the lasso and there's some nice relationships between the condition number and potentially the size of the, the ridge. Uh, Roger Bivens seems to have taken in hand, uh, having developed the SPGWR package, uh, if you look at the entries on RSIG-GEO, he's as in-your-face as it's sort of possible to come, uh, where he described its uh, GWR as a notoriously unreliable technique and it should only be used for exploring data. Um, any tests are doubtful. Uh, and um, if you look at the evolution of the SPGWR tool, uh, Roger's actually taken out all of the, uh, the T statistics and he's now removed the calculation of the, uh, the, the, the locally weighted standard errors at the moment. And the ArcGIS tool um, doesn't calculate the T values uh, either. One thing that the ArcGIS tool, the guys uh, developing the ArcGIS tool did do uh, was indicate, um, was provide users with uh, some measure of the collinearity problem since the tool was developed after the Wheeler and Tiefelsdorf paper. So for example, for the, um, uh, for the, um, the, the, the Georgia example I used earlier on, uh, you can actually plot the spatial variation of the condition number in um, the cross products matrix. And uh, here, although none of the variables receives a threshold of, of 30, there's some, uh, um, there are some uh, variations in the, uh, the collinearity uh, in, in the data. Um, just to come towards a, an end of series of, of issues, one of them is that um, we, we've, we've investigated using ridge regression um, so that uh, you, you, you add up what's called a ridge parameter uh, into, the, um, into the estimator. Um, to take into account uh, the, the, the collinearity and the question then becomes, well, what's the appropriate value for the, the ridge parameter? And um, uh, Wheeler's uh, looked at uh, estimating the, the bandwidth and the, um, the ridge parameter simultaneously. And the, the experiments that we've done suggest still that the variation in bandwidth is, is much uh, more influential on the goodness of fit of the model rather than the variation in the ridge parameter. I mentioned as well earlier on that we've looked at um, uh, model building and semi-parametric models, so fit, uh, creating some, uh, f uh, allowing some variables in the model to uh, have spatially varying coefficients, others uh, to have um, spatially fixed coefficients. Well, a generalization of this one is to allow every variable in the model to have its own um, local bandwidth. 
uh, the assumption being, or the thinking being, that there could be a different spatial scale at which um, each variable contributes to the, uh, the, the model. And um, uh, that we refer to these things as uh, flexible bandwidth models. Um, there's a PhD student now at St Andrews University who's uh, looking at these with Stuart Fothering. It's very much uh, work in progress. Um, the initial fitting of the models is, is, is very, very slow, um, but uh, I don't think that's, that, that, that this is a potentially quite an exciting uh, area uh, in spite of that. And finally, just to, to, to bring things to a close, it is possible to apply the geographical weighting to, to, to others. And in our explorations of the collinearity issues, uh, given the condition number is the ratio of the, uh, the, the, the largest to the smallest uh, eigenvalue for the cross products matrix, um, that uh, we could have a look at geographically weighted uh, principal components. Um, so it does link back to. Um, um, our, our studies of um, the, the problems of collinearity and allows us to try and uncover some of the spatial variations in the structure of the data that we, uh, we, we, we stick on the right-hand side of the model. The problem is that um, the, the, the data outputs are magnified hugely. Um, with GWR, you get one set of parameter estimates uh, for every area. Uh, with geographically weighted principal components, you get a set of... Uh, um, eigenvalues and their associated eigenvectors. Um, so you get absolutely deluged in the, in the data. So we've looked at variations in, in the first and, and particularly the last as they're influential in terms of the condition um, and uh, um, larger ver values of the first eigenvalue may indicate then there's a potential problem. So we could, and then mapping the, 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 the structure of the local eigenvectors uh, provides us with some nice visualization um, um, some nice visualization issues, and we've used multivariate glyphs to to, to look at uh, to, to look at variation, and we haven't covered uh, um, um, things which 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 it, uh, lead us into asking well more questions about the uh, the data that we've either got in the model or not got in the model. Finally, um, we're not alone um, in all of this, and people who are much much better at um, uh, understanding the statistical properties of spatial data than I ever will be have come up with uh, other models based on um, a rather more um, a potentially um, um, consistent uh, inferential basis. Uh, and the first paper on what the, um, uh, the, the statistical community referred to as space-varying coefficient models uh, appeared uh, just uh, under a decade ago. And um, space-varying coefficient models are associated particularly with the name of uh, Alan Gelfand and his colleagues. And the nice thing about it is that uh, um, although the models do take a great deal of time to fit because they're fitted using MCMC, um, the outputs do actually, um, instead of the parameters, they do actually have the probability distributions that it's possible to, um, um, to compute the, uh, the, 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 um, uh, look at the influence on a consistent basis. And there's been some studies of the Gelfand type models um, which do have a slightly better fit to the data, uh, which is satisfying, although at the moment the approach is, uh, is, is time-consuming. Um, every so often, when I write one of these um, presentations, I look at, uh, uh, to see what comes up with geographically weighted regression. Um, uh, about three years ago, there were 40,000 hits. It's 67,400. That's for the string, so it's not just the individual components of that. Um, now, some of those may well be people who are intensely critical of GWR as a methodology, um, but we know from our own um, uh, uh, software and our own software distribution that interest has been shown 
uh, outside, uh, in many disi disciplines, outside just that of geography. Uh, there are other GW possibilities, summary statistics we've published on discriminant analysis. Chris Brunson's given a paper on box plots, and Paul Harris has looked at geographically weighted variograms. So for us and for the, the development of it all, there are uh, plenty of uh, spatial modelling challenges. I've just been looking at the clock over there, and um, it's uh, not quite three o'clock, so thank you very much. And uh, I didn't see anybody fall asleep there, so... <laughs> Yes. Can I ask a supremely naive question? Fire away. I'll try and answer it. So, so if you gave me a time series of a multi-component data set, right. and you asked me, you know, which components are correlated, or you know, because that's kind of what you're interested in. You're trying to interest our, you know, without you telling me the geography of their location, what I would do is I would compute, say, an empirical autocovariance matrix, and I'd do PCA on it, and it would tell me. These variables seem to be coupled and moving in tandem. These variables seem to be coupled and moving in tandem. And now you know the geography, the location of all those variables, and it will tell me how to make my regions. I'm just wondering why, you know, why do you explicitly build the geography into the regression method? Or, you know, what's naive about doing? You know, it's a transparently naive because you're doing something much more complex. But I'm wondering why is that naive? I don't think it's not. I don't think it's naive at all. And actually, what you're talking there about. Uh, coming from time series and looking at different structures at different points in time, uh, I think it's part of the is the background that we that, that we come from. And I come from geography, where um, to get time series data um, is 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 um, is really quite a challenge, and, and we deal a great deal in in, in cross sectional data. So you know the great cross sectional surveys that we all fill in every ten years, well, every five years in this country in terms of the, the census provide us with a, a rich set of socioeconomic indicators and potential uh, um, 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 uh, possibilities which, for which a modelling is appropriate, um, in which case then the, 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 the spatial aspect is, 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 is appropriate. However, the housing data is a really big challenge and perhaps there's something here for, um, uh, for some from work. I have 20 years worth of uh, housing data for the UK and uh, there's over a million house sales in that data set, each of which is, is indexed by a spatial location, but also is indexed by the month of the sale. And it's exactly the data I was talking about early on. Um, so we've got the price and the housing attributes. So not only do you get variation in terms of um, the, the economic variability of the price through, uh, through time, <coughs> you've got the changing relationships through space, and in the UK, um, the, um, the, the years from 1980 to 2000 were marked by a number of housing booms and crashes and recoveries in the housing market. Um, it's a hugely rich data set. There's very little analysis has been taken place on it. Um, I have one PhD student looking at building a time kernel in, somewhat by the space time, by the time kernel. But an interesting question came in as to do one, um, if one's got something at time t, what's the relationship between the previous ones? Do we put in ones ahead of you in the future as we have data about them? Um, and uh, there are a whole bunch of really interesting questions. Um, you know, that data is there for people to play with. And probably if, uh, if people would like to have a look at that, so make that one available. But I don't think it's a naive question. No, well, it was because uh, I was thinking of your um, 
rainfall measurements, yeah. in which case you would have a time series, but yes. as you're saying you have these data sets for which you have, which is not something I've got the, yeah. Right. You don't have a time series. Large, it's pretty largely, it's unusual to have time series, particularly in social geography, because the cost of the, I mean, 10,000 rain gauges, uh, the cost of your experiment is, you know, they're there because they're used in the, in, in, in the um, uh, you know, in the national weather forecasting system. The cost of the census is so huge that, um, in the UK, it's only once every 10 years. Some countries no longer bother with the census because they've got police registration. Um, so the, 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 the analytical possibilities of um, uh, arising panels rather than uh, over a time series. Maybe I can ask a couple, but one, one's a, another naive question. Why, why, are you, what, why are you fitting the data in the first place? What's the, what's the intent of putting a model to the data? Is it that the parameters of some physical meaning? Is it, what, yeah, what well, well, there's, two, there's two reasons that uh, we, we, do the, um, we do the one in, in the first place. I'll, I'll use the housing example because it's, uh, it, it's, it's quite a neat one. It's, uh, we've used it in the book. Is, um, that um, you either try and fit the model in order to get a better prediction, so uh, um, and, and that's one thing that uh, has characterised quite a lot of the, um, uh, the the work in geography. And the second one is that uh, one's trying to get some um, make some inferences about the process which has has led uh, to the 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 the, 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 the variation in, in the response variables. So going back to the house prices, for example. Um, if one's actually trying to value houses, uh, what is the info, what's the in a particular location, what's the, um, you know, the, the general um, cost of an extra bedroom in that particular location. And one of the things which the, uh, the real estate community is, is that we've had quite, there's a, a big literature on modelling in real estate, uh, and one in terms of that valuation. I mean other ones in terms of uh, other sorts of models are to try and uncover uh, the nature of the process, but unlike um, um, uh, lots of things in, in um, uh, other disciplines where you've got very well defined experiments, so um, it's you know it's possible in the laboratory to set up an experiment and look at the relationship between the conditions of the experiment and the laboratory. But uh, with, with social data and social measurements, we don't tend to have um, um, we don't tend to have well defined experiments. So to take a case in point, one of the um, uh, one of the areas of interest in um, um, uh, with social data is to create what are called deprivation seeds. So, um, you know, effectively latent variant models based on principal components, where you're trying to bring together a, a combination, or usually a linear combination, of some variables, and you'll say, okay, the result of that is a measure of deprivation. So that is as as as, as much model. I mean, the reality of it is is that happens. And they're sometimes used then to feed forward into um, the decisions where to locate hospitals or uh, where to make other other other, other um, models. And certainly in the um, 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 in um, there's been a big group at the University of Leeds has been associated with uh, helping firms make locational decisions. And part of that has been made on attempting to forecast um, and other potential profits from sales of uh, goods or sales of petrol or sales of cars or whatever. So it's a mixture of different things. And yeah. the second question yeah. was more technical. So you mentioned preaching at the start. Yeah. I mean, and Bayesian stuff at the end. Which, so what, what there's, there's a, so that would be a nice Bayesian take on it. It seems very, very similar in many ways. Or at least it could be used to tackle very similar problems. So what's the, 
One of the things that I'd love, you know, love to be able to do is, um, and I've, I've just actually employed a, uh, a somebody because I've been quite, uh, you know, my understanding of Bayesian statistics is uh, is is is, um, is virtually nil, and I do rely on my colleague Chris Brunson, who actually has trading stats, uh, to explain the, uh, the, the the nature of the models to me. So I'm, I'm quite happy to uh, to um, uh, follow along in my uh, my own ignorance of that one. I do look at the papers, and I mean the advantage of the Bayesian one is the inferential framework in terms of um, 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 uh, assisting us in, in making some inferences about the processes that we're looking at. Uh, the second one is that um, uh, set against that is the is the, the, the burning and the fitting time for the MCMC models on, on very large data sets. Um, and uh, the, 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 the advantage of, of what we've got here is it's very, you know, it's relatively uh, quick and easy to get something out in terms of uh, perhaps exploration. And um, um, I don't think we've ever uh, suggested uh, that uh, GWR has a strong inferential framework. And actually, the, 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 the nice thing about the Bayesian models is it does provide us with that consistent framework to help us make some inferences about those processes. Uh, Creedy, I think, um, asks a, um, it does ask a related set of questions and comes um, at things from a very slightly different um, uh, point of view in terms of, um, of, uh, of the understanding about uh, providing a prediction. Uh, one of the things that we, we did do a paper some years ago um, in which we looked at putting um, uh, different sorts of models in as the drift term in, in a creating model so that um, uh, one of those models could in fact be, a, a, well, it, it was a geographic weighted regression model, and we're still left with some residuals out, and they still might have some spatial structure in there. Um, and we did get some better fits out by using Creeding with the GWR model uh, fitted in.